long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Our guest is Congressman Rob Whitman, who has represented Virginia's first congressional district since 2007. Congressman Whitman was recently named vice ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, and we're pleased to be able to talk with him today about the military and strategic threats to the United States. Congressman Whitman, welcome to the show. Michael, thank you. Great to be with you. You know, I think we'd start with, as someone, you've been on the House Armed Services Committee for a while, and now you're in a committee leadership role, I believe number two of 28 Republicans on the committee. It's a pretty big committee. Uh, you know a lot about the strategic challenges facing the United States, and so I wanted to get your take on what you see as the main threats that we're facing. Well, the pacing threat today and the biggest threat that I believe will challenge the United States is China. Uh, and you can make an argument about uh, the threats of Russia, and certainly there's certain elements of that, but, but the threat that continues to grow uh, is, is China. And, you know, I, I, I noticed that I was uh, doing some research and I saw that the Department of Defense's uh, 2020 China military power report uh, reports that China's Navy is actually now the largest Navy in the world, which which surprised me. And uh, according to this report, they have uh, around 350 ships and subs compared to uh, 293 in, in the U.S. Navy. And I, I was wondering if you feel that this is a real cause for concern. Uh, well, Michael, it is. It, it used to be that you'd look at China and you'd say, well, yes, they have more ships than we do, but it's quality versus quantity. That is the quality of, of U.S. ships versus the quantity of Chinese ships. But make no mistake about it, the Chinese now have both quantity and quality. Their ships are very, very capable. Their systems, too, that uh, can put our ships at risk are significantly bigger and, and more far-reaching than they have been in the past. So the the Chinese naval threat is significant. And the Chinese for years had been a regional navy, and that is the South China Sea, the Western Pacific. But today, as we speak, their operations are across the entire Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and they even have deployed ships uh, into the Atlantic. They have a, a base there at Djibouti now, uh, there uh, in, in Africa. So they are continuing to grow their presence, and their intent is to have a Navy that operates worldwide. And they watch our Navy very closely to try to learn the lessons about what we do to sustain around the world. Uh, and, and they're very, very aggressive in trying to get information. That's, that's the, 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 the cyber breaches and the efforts that they undertake to try to get the, the information about what makes our Navy successful. So, so they understand that in order to exert influence around the world, they're going to do it through naval power. They, they've seen historically that those companies, those, excuse me, those countries that dominate strategically are those that are also sea powers. And they, they, they see the correlation there. And that's what their track is right now as we speak, is to build that Navy and to operate worldwide. Now, hey, Congressman, following up on that, I, I guess... Is that that's something that's it seems different than what we have seen in other 
confrontations with U.S. Uh, other other uh, strategic opponents or, or enemies, if, if you want to call them that. For example, the Russians never had that sort of uh, naval power, and and the idea that it, I mean, do you think it's it's much more significant now that we live in such a a globalized world where global trade is is uh, so much happening so 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 frequently as opposed to as it was say fifty years ago? Well, it is. If if you look again historically, those countries that are uh, are economic leaders are also ones that had significant presence on the seas, so they could maintain those open lanes of commerce on the seas. We all know that you know the vast majority of of commerce transacts over the water, and to keep shipping lanes open to defend your interests there is key to making sure that you can indeed maintain your economic presence. So the two go hand in hand. Uh, strategic interests go hand in hand with economic interest, and it's hard to have one without the other. And listen, the Chinese understand that. The Chinese see what uh, is going on around the world. Uh, their One Belt, One Road initiative is another el- element to either economically help or to isolate adversaries. And they are they are very, very adept at not only um, doing things to create economic interests in a variety of different countries, especially small developing countries, but also to build strategic interests there, uh, as we've seen with the recent construction of the port there in Djibouti. Uh, you know, it's, it's about providing economic resources, but then in return, creating a strategic foothold in these areas. That is very concerning because that's what they're doing to grow a worldwide presence. And remember, the United States through the years uh, did the same thing, created interests, uh, that is, relationships with other countries, uh, would have uh, a strategic presence there, in many instances, building bases there. Now, in the world we live in today, that's not something that, that happens uh, like it used to, uh, mainly because of countries wanting to uh, to, to, to maintain their their sovereignty without an appearance that they're under strategic uh, uh, influence by the United States, but the Chinese take advantage of that. They they go to these developing countries and provide economic resources for them, and in exchange, get a strategic foothold there. And that's that's something that should concern everybody. In addition to their efforts to grow their navy, you know, and I wonder with the with the recent military coup in Myanmar that that the growing power of China is maybe more of a more of an issue even, you know, in that area, because it seems like we're perhaps less able to exert influence with China being a a greater a greater player, especially in that area. Well, it is. And, you know, the Chinese are very adept at creating those relationships. And even though those countries want to be a friend of the United States, they feel compelled to have to play both sides. And, and I've seen that as I've traveled to those countries, they say, hey, we, we want to be your friend, but we don't want to unfriend to use a, <laughs> to use a, 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 a social media term. We don't want to unfriend the Chinese because they see the economic interest there. And if you see Myanmar is in a critical place and you see the Chinese have uh, made economic investments in Myanmar, and they have created this one belt, one road, and that goes through Myanmar to be able to link those different countries economically. But the link is always back to China. And when I visited and spoke with leaders in India, that one belt, one road 
is a threat to India and China specifically doing that to try to isolate India. But that's also an, an opportunity for the United States. As I speak to leaders in India, from Prime Minister Modi to the chief of their Navy, they want to have a stronger relationship with the United States to counter Chinese efforts in that region. But that is just a microcosm of what China is doing, uh, not just there, but around the world. It's not just in Asia, but it's in Africa and, and, and elsewhere. Now, I, I think some people might say, you know, if we look at military spending, uh, now you have better numbers on this, I'm sure, than I would. But the last numbers I have from 2019 suggest that the U.S. spent somewhere around $732 billion on the military in China while they were in second. It's a very distant second at $261 billion. And, you know, a lot of people would look at that kind of top line number and say, well, not only are we comfortably in the lead, but we could maybe stand to make some considerable cuts in military spending and invest in other areas that maybe we need more help in, like things like countering the One Belt, One Road initiative in China. And I wanted to get your take on that in terms of our priorities in terms of spending to counter the Chinese threat. Well, listen, soft power, that is the use of, of diplomacy and other elements besides uh, the, 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 the threat of kinetics. Uh, or cyber from the military is certainly part of the formula. You have to have a strong soft power component to create relationships with other countries to try to counter the, the efforts by China. But one thing is that, is that we know the Chinese do not fully report what they spend on the military. There are a lot of costs there that we put into our military budget that are essentially sunk costs with the Chinese that are not something that they report concerning their military spending. Uh, and remember, too, that there are multiple threats that the, that the United States faces. It's not just China. It's Russia, although the Russia is still more of a regional threat. It's more of a threat in the Atlantic, but still significant. And then what we have to do to counter uh, the, the actions by Iran, by North Korea and others. Uh, so so our, our scope is is broader and wider. And another element too is that we want to make sure that we are not only having the readiness today necessary to deter any adversary from wanting to take advantage of the United States, but also making sure that we modernize. And I think that's one of the key elements that we face today is how do we make sure we have the capability we need today to deter, but how do we make enough investment in the future to make sure we modernize and have what we need uh, in a realm that we know is going to exist uh, five years, 10 years down the road. I think that those things are incredibly important and they do take investment and, and our investments are to counter multiple threats, not just what the Chinese are doing. And that is uh, looking at the United States as their 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 pacing threat, as you would call it. Uh, but listen, we we can and should do more in developing those relationships. We see what China's doing and China has, uh, whether you like it or not, China's been effective in building those types of relationships. So there has to be a balance there uh, in in what we do between soft power and hard power. And in terms of building, oh, go ahead, Jay. Well, I was going to say, Congressman, this is, you know, maybe this is a, a question for a little later on in, in our discussion. But, you know, related to that, um, you know, one of the, the flashpoints, obviously, uh, in our relationship with China uh, is and, and will be Taiwan. Um, yes. 
and, and China has, has recently shown uh, a much more aggressive stance towards Taiwan just in the last couple of weeks. Um, what advice would you give to the, the incoming Biden administration in dealing with uh, the, uh, our, our situation with uh, Taiwan? Well, Taiwan, as you know, historically has been a great partner to the United States, and we have built our operations plans around uh, protecting Taiwan from an overly aggressive China. I, I think China is going to continue to uh, ramp up the aggressiveness with Taiwan, just as we've seen them ramp up the aggressiveness with Hong Kong. Uh, their effort is to have a tight grip on that region of the world. Uh, Taiwan is one of those places where they don't have as tight a grip as they would like, both strategically and economically. They see Taiwan continuing to grow economically. I think their concern is, is as Taiwan gets stronger and stronger economically, it becomes more and more difficult for them to be able to bring Taiwan back into the fold. So I, I, I think they're going to continue along that path. The challenge for the United States is going to be, what will we do? in maintaining our partnership with uh, Taiwan. I, I think, I think that's, that's going to be the key. We know that uh, we have certain plans that we will put in place in order to defend Taiwan's interest. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if China continues to push the issue there to see how far the United States will go in defending Taiwan's interests. So I, I, think, I think you'll see even more and more of that aggressive behavior as time moves forward. If the Taiwan, if the Taiwanese government doesn't capitulate to Beijing, I had another question about a relationship building in the region, which, as you pointed out, is pretty important. In that, do you think that that should also include multilateral economic relationships? I mean, I know that a lot of, there are a lot of different views on of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for instance. But if not that particular agreement, do we need agreements like that to try to counter China's economic influence? Do you think? Absolutely. I think that's where the greatest potential exists for us to counter Chinese efforts, especially uh, in Southeast Asia. As we know, countries like Vietnam, while there is a connection between the communist parties of China and Vietnam, there is not a good relationship between the governments there. And if we could build economic partnerships through trade agreements with countries like Vietnam, uh, in other countries in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Cambodia, and others. Uh, by the way, Southeast Asia, the fastest growing economies in the world, about 7%. There's great opportunity there. And those countries want to have those relationships with the United States. So that's a great way to counter what the Chinese are doing in that particular region, especially their methodology. What they are doing is going into this, those countries especially uh, the, some of the smaller island nations there from Micronesia and others going in and, and providing some dollars, building some roads or a building of those things as a symbol of goodwill. But then in return, receiving either agreements to develop the natural resources there or strategic agreements that are far greater in value than the dollars that they are giving for these particular projects there. But again, because those countries don't get attention from others when they do get the attention from China, from China is very alluring. And we, what we have to be able to do is not just go in and try to create a, 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 
a strategic or even um, a, uh, a friendly agreement with those nations as far as what we will do to cooperate. But those nations have to see ways that they can build their economies based upon relationships uh, with the United States. So taking the next step and saying, OK, what can we do to cooperate with you economically, I think is a great way to counter China, who has already been doing that now for the for the past decade in, in those regions. And, you know, I, I guess on the sort of the stick side of carrots and sticks, building relationships is one end. But it seems to me that we've been uh, at least you can argue that the United States and really the international community has been awful lax in allowing China's abuses in a lot of ways, not just human rights abuses, but abuses of intellectual property and other things. And, you know, one thing that Jay and I have talked about on the show is that we saw in the Trump administration a move to really be a lot a lot firmer with China on that. And one question that we've both asked ourselves as well, is this a matter of too little, too late? It would have been easier certainly to do when China was in a far weaker position. And you wonder, given the growth of their economy and projections that they're going to be the largest economy in the world in, say, a generation or less, if if this sort of strategy can actually be effective. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think the only the only actions that China really takes seriously are those actions that are um, followed through upon and are significant. I, I don't think little things that that are for appearance sake have any impact on China. China understands one thing and one thing only, and that's strength, because that's how they operate. So I think looking at how we deal with China going forward, uh, we have to be aggressive and we have to do what we say we're going to do. The, the, what China looks at is to test people's resolve. And it's not just the United States. It's, it's, it's other countries in the region. And they're used to watching others be lacking in resolve. And they are very resolved. Their, their resolve is, is that they will be the world's leading strategic and economic power. Make no mistake about it. And they are laser focused on that. And they do that each and every day. Uh, and what they do is is not only advancing their own interests, but they do that by testing others' resolve. And they do that too by seeing uh, what they can what they can get through relationships with others. They are they are exploitive, uh, and but and they and they do not have the same set of principles that the United States has. But it has served their purpose through the years, and that's the policy that they continue. Uh, con- con- continue on with. They are they are ruthless and relentless, and that's the policy that has advanced their interests. And the only thing that they understand is is an equal amount of ruthless and relentlessness. And so, in a way, that's kind of an advantage, almost, of being in an authoritarian system. A, a weird advantage in that they can they can have that sort of laser focus because they don't have to be concerned with elections or what the people think, at least in the short run. That's right. They they can maintain a constant direction of policy and action, whereas in our country, and listen, I, I don't in any way, shape or form want to change it. I think our country is the greatest, uh, uh, the greatest man has ever known. But we do have a, a, a pattern of where when administrations change, we, you know, we change track a little bit. So so we don't always stay in a in a in a in a straight line. Sometimes our path meanders a little bit. And, and when you meander, uh, listen, it, it's, it's good in the sense that you're reflecting the will of the people. That's what makes our government great. But it also makes it a little more difficult to be able to get to a point 
to achieve the things that sometimes you need to achieve to deter China. Not that we can't do it. I believe strongly that, that we can do it. It's just a little more of a challenge for us to do it within our system of government. I wouldn't have it any, any other way. And listen, the, the Chinese do not either ascribe to our set of principles, to our morals or our ethics, uh, and, and that's who they are. Uh, they, they will do anything necessary because they believe that the uh, ends justify the means. We're not like that. We're going to do things based on a set of principles that's, that's founded in our Constitution. We're not going to change from that. That's a good thing. We just have to recognize that it is more of a challenge, but not an insurmountable challenge. Do you think it's more? Or go ahead, Jay. I was going to say related to that, Congressman. You know, on the uh, the the uh, Trump administration in its closing days, uh, named a uh, China as a, a perpetrator of genocide. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how does that play with the international community? Is that going to is it is it sort of a wake up call to to other countries of what's really going on uh, there, or is it something that that uh, may be brushed aside for economic interests? No, I think it. I think it's a wake up call to the rest of the world. I think the United States leads the way on humanitarian issues, and I think by United States doing that, I think it sends a signal to the rest of the world, hopefully opening up opportunities for them to do the same. I mean, we see what they've done to the Uyghurs there, and, and other elements of, of of their populations that are just just unbelievable, and to call those things out so that other countries don't say, well, we'll look past that because of what we believe is a strategic interest of ours, I think helps us get other countries in uh, to partner with the United States to stand against the things that China does. You've been you've been in Congress for a while now. And so uh, there used to be this saying back in the day that politics stops at the water's edge. And uh, I was wondering the extent to which not only you, you think that's true, but to the extent to which maybe that has changed in the time that you've been involved in, in, in Congress and in uh, international relations at this level. Well, listen, <laughs> since I since I've been in Congress, I have seen things get much more partisan. But not in every circumstance. There's still places where members can work together. In fact, I've been very honored and privileged to work with members on the other side of the aisle on issues that involve uh, the environment, uh, the Chesapeake Bay, uh, even even in the realm of economic development on things like broadband and career and technical education, as well as the military. And the House Armed Services Committee is still the bellwether for bipartisanship in the Congress. And it, even with all the division that we've seen recently, uh, it's still that way. And my conversations with Joe Courtney, who is a dear friend, who is the, the chair of the Sea Power Subcommittee, the, the subcommittee that I'm ranking member upon, and then Adam Smith, who is the, the chairman of the committee, uh, ha- have all expressed the deep interest in continuing the effort to be bipartisan. So there are elements of bipartisanship there on Capitol Hill. Uh, in today's environment, when the nation is divided, it, it takes more of an effort to make sure you stay on the track of bipartisanship. But it's still there. Uh, and members still put a significant amount of effort into making sure that things are indeed bipartisan. So uh, while, the, while the, the nature of relationships have changed, there is still there's still bipartisanship there that exists at levels where things can get done in the interest of the nations uh, of our nation can be protected. 
No, I, I know we're running short on time, but I would kick myself if I didn't ask you at least one pretty wonky question because as, sure. as, as Jay knows and some listeners might know, is I've been fascinated by defense procurement for, gosh, for decades, which is a weird thing to be fascinated by, I know. But, but you know, we hear a lot of stories about, especially in, time, in trying to uh, develop our, our capabilities of cost overruns and, and delays and things like that. And I'm wondering... To your, in your experience, how much of a problem are those sort of things, especially with big ticket programs? And what, if anything, can we do to minimize those problems as we modernize our military? Well, listen, over the past five years, uh, Chairman Thornberry and I worked together to put in place significant changes to acquisition. And I still think there's more to be done. The Pentagon through the years has been very monolithic in how it makes decisions, very bureaucratic, multiple layers. They have gotten better, though, in streamlining decision making, in assuring that you can get technology much more quickly to the warfighter uh, to do rapid acquisition, to make sure, too, that you're not penalizing situations where you try something and it doesn't work. And at one point, that used to be a career killer. I argue there's still a stigma attached to it, but not as much as before. Uh, but so there's a there's a change that uh, still needs to continue within the Pentagon to change the culture and to reduce the levels of bureaucracy. Now, some of that has happened. We've made decision making happen closer to uh, to to the unit level, uh, but there's still a number of things that that need to be done. And here's the bottom line: is is we can't in today's world with threats as they change and with technology as it changes at a, at a breakneck pace. You can't take 15 years to develop and actually put into place the next generation fighter aircraft. Great example is F-35. The number of years that it took from concept to development to decision-making to construction to initial operating uh, platform, uh, you, you can't take that long. So we have to do things faster we have to also get away from the, the metric that everything of significance has to be a program of record. Things don't have to start off that way, and that's kind of a bureaucratic thing that you, you go through. And it, the problem is, is it takes years to be able to get there. So we still have to streamline decision-making in the Pentagon. We still have to be able to develop and, and build and deploy major weapon systems without taking decades to do that because – our adversaries can do it much faster and, and with much more dexterity than we can. If we're going to counter them, we have to do that. And another thing, too, that I think is incredibly important, in fact, I would argue is the greatest strategic advantage that we can create is we have to, and you spoke a little bit about this earlier, we have to, with the dollars that we spend, get more per our dollar than the Chinese get per their yuan or the Russians get per their ruble. That's the way we're going to prevail strategically. This is not going to be the Cold War where we, where we just out-resource our opponents. This has to be we get more for what we spend than our opponents because the top line is not going to continue uh, to increase in the way we've seen it increase recently. We just 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 can't do it, especially with all the dollars that that have been spent on, on the pandemic. And listen, we, we need to be out there helping get this economy back on track, but that comes with it a cost that's going to continue through the year. So those are the elements that we have to keep forefront in our mind. Do more with our dollar, be more innovative and creative, be able to get technology through the system faster, uh, try things out, be willing to fail, but fail quickly, and then 
be able to stay ahead of our adversaries by doing that. Well, Congressman Whitman, we really do appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us about this. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Congressman. Well, thank you. Well, listen, thanks again for the opportunity. We look forward to coming back with you again soon. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.